0: Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, your podcast guide through Swedish history. I'm Chris and as always with me on this journey is Åsa.
1: Yes, I'm Åsa and this is episode 84 which will be about all things castles in Sweden. We're going to be focusing on the story of the castle in the past one or two hundred years as they have been an important feature of the story during the last few centuries of conflict and drama all around the Baltic Sea. We haven't really touched on how they were built and what they did, apart from being the scene of some dramatic battles or political events. So now we have reached a decent spot after the revolts in the 15th century. This seems to be as good a time as any to talk about them.
0: Yeah, especially as we've started seeing the cannon and bombard, two devastating newfangled weapons, make their way up to Scandinavia recently. Some people in 1430s Sweden might be forgiven for doubting how effective these giant stone fortresses will be in the near future. So let's talk about them now before anything else happens.
1: Absolutely. Good idea. But before we talk about castles, it's time for our Swedish phrase of the week, which actually is one that you would have seen around castles, or at least military installations and fortresses during World War II, and that is En svensk tiger. This is actually less of a phrase as such, and more of a famous propaganda slogan from World War II. The intention behind En svensk tiger and the famous poster that accompanied it during the war was to remind Swedes to keep quiet and not talk about anything that could potentially harm Sweden. Basically not gossip and uh, not perhaps indulge in idle talk about where military installations might be or if they had been told by husbands or sons or other relatives or friends who were in the military where they were stationed, that should be kept to themselves and so on. Considering that especially in the early years of the war, Stockholm in particular was pretty rife with spies and informers of all kinds, it was probably a worthwhile poster campaign. The phrase is actually a play on words, in particular the double meaning of the word tiger. See, in Swedish, tiger is both a verb meaning staying silent and a noun meaning tiger, as in the stripy animal.
0: So the phrase means simultaneously, a Swede stays silent and a Swedish tiger, the the latter evoking an image of the power and the ability of a predatory animal. In fact, the image that accompanied the slogan was of a tiger, but instead of the usual stripes you might see in the zoo or in the wild, it had blue and yellow stripes, just like the Swedish flag.
1: Exactly. The poster and the slogan became very well known during the war, since it was put up Everywhere, from cafes and train stations to private businesses. People could also get stickers to put on envelopes or on suitcases. However, after the war, many people who were critical of Sweden's policy of neutrality, in inverted commas, During World War II and our compliancy towards Nazi Germany, like influential liberal newspaper editor Herbert Tingstein, they used the slogan to illustrate how Sweden collectively, and Swedish individuals in particular, had stayed quiet about atrocities that they knew were being conducted by Nazi Germany and their allies and had not stood up against it. So in that debate, the stay silent part was used to instead mean compliancy and appeasement.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting phrase in the sense that it has quite a lot of meanings both then and now. I guess in its original meaning and the campaign it was designed for, it's similar to the British campaign Careless Talk Cost Lives or American Loose Lips Sink Ships and the Walls Have Ears and all that kind of stuff. And uh, like you said also, it's equally well known for the image. It's all over the internet if you just Google N. Svensk Tiger and um, we'll write that in the episode notes so you can... uh, know how to spell it. But now it's time to get on with what people are here for, and that's castles. We've seen castles in so many episodes now we can't recap them all, but we're going to run through the way castles were used and some of the more famous ones. We'll look at how they were used in war, their role as a home for the rich and powerful, and how they played their role in local government, so to speak, both in Sweden, Finland and abroad.
1: Then we'll look at what the castles actually looked like, how they were built and what defences they had, before discussing what life was like there. We'll also use some foreign examples, from England in particular, as we discuss how these giant features of the Swedish landscape came to influence all sorts of events in history.
0: It sounds very exciting. So let's begin with the way we've seen castles appear in the story so far, and that's mostly been in wars and conflicts. Castles were the staging grounds for armies and places for the king and noblemen to use to project power over the surrounding countryside or waterways. As a result, they were the prime target for opposing armies and rebel forces, either through direct assault or long sieges designed to starve the enemy out. We've seen various castles being used in this way so let's just mention a few of them and learn the story of castles as we go and we'll look more at their defences in depth later on.
1: We have of course seen various types of castles and forts and defences for a while now and even way back in the narrative but by now it is the classic image of the castle that is with us in Sweden. Stone buildings with large walls and formidable defences. These are also different in many ways from the fortified towns we've seen in the history, such as Visby with its large surrounding stone walls. Looking back over the last few centuries, we can see that castles were and still are huge in the narrative when it comes to Sweden's expansion eastwards, both militarily and politically. The first time we covered a castle in the east was when King Yuan back in 1220 went on a crusade slash raid slash expedition to Estonia with some bishops and a small army. He took over an old fort on a hill on an island west of mainland Estonia and used that as a base for his forces.
0: But then this castle was attacked by the inhabitants of the island and the Jarl on the trip with them, Karl the Death, was killed, as well as the Bishop of Linshaping, both of whom were part of the influential Bielbu family. This castle was the only real base of Swedish power in the area and with its loss came the loss of any political power Sweden had in Estonia, an area which they then left to the Danes and the Teutonic Knights to deal with whilst the Swedes concentrated on Finland instead. And focus on Finland they did, with a big campaign there against Novgorod at the end of the 1200s, when the town and castle at Svetmenvendenpoja was built. And uh, no offence to the Finns who listen to this podcast, but luckily these Swedes renamed the place V-Boy. And the castle there has been a huge part of the Swedish story in the East so far.
1: The Novgorodians didn't take this lying down, and this was when we saw one of our first sieges... This one didn't go too well, though, as the attack took place in winter and the Swedes had clearly been studying how to build good castles from their European counterparts, like the French and the English. And the castle was built right on the end of an inlet, so you could really only attack it from sea or along this well-defended land bridge.
0: And that was when the frozen water started to break up and float away in the winds, meaning that the Novgorodian army literally floated away on the ice. But it was here when we started to see the effects that long sieges would have on the defenders, because while surviving the attack is enough at a castle, it's the issue of how to keep up supplies that's important. Fresh supplies and reinforcements have to be shipped in, and in this case it had to be done all the way from Sweden. Castles might be good defensive structures, but they can always be starved out.
1: This became a problem later in the same campaign, when after taking the nearby castle of Kiksholm from Novgorod, the enemy counterattacks and starts to starve out the small group of Swedes left to look after the fortress. They were starved out for so long that the Swedes either had to sally forth an attack, starve or try and escape. They decide to try and run for it, but only two men escape with their lives.
0: So we're seeing early on in history, albeit a lot later in Sweden than in, say, England, that starving out the enemy seems to be a good way to go when it comes to these large, proper stone castles. Everyone at this point, by the start of the 1300s, saw the power that a castle can give you, and especially if you place one at a choke point on land or by rivers. The Swedes built a wooden fortress at the mouth of the Neva River, putting a chokehold on the Novgorodian towns and villages nearby.
1: Sometimes the defenders thought it better to fight outside the walls first, as they did here when the Novgorodians came to counterattack, so they could utilize their heavy cavalry, but most times the battles took place on the walls of the fortress. But it really is the issue of supply that is the weak point for these castles, something that comes back to bite the Swedes again with this new fortress, as Novgorod just starved the defenders out once more.
0: Because of the importance of these defences at strategic locations, towns often sprung up nearby. And in this case, the Novgorodian town founded there became St Petersburg, so they did alright with that town. But as castles became more impressive, new ways of attacking them needed to be developed. Some were more simple, and some more advanced. We saw that recently in Sweden, when Engelbrecht Engelbreksson forced the defenders of Ringstadholm Castle to surrender, he built a five-story tall siege tower, leading the commander of the castle to give up rather than be overrun by the attackers. A tower on wheels is perhaps not the most complicated method, but it was certainly effective. And we saw in the battles in the east the first recorded use of siege engines in a battle that Sweden was involved in, when Novgorod once again attacked v in the 1320s. They attacked the walls with six catapults, or perhaps battering rams, but these weren't enough to break the walls, and the enemy just had to make do with burning down and pillaging the local town instead.
1: Which is an important point to make. Even with their strong defences and sturdy walls, the castles couldn't protect the nearby towns if the defenders retreated inside. The walls protected the soldiers, but they could do nothing about the nearby surroundings. We saw this recently in the war with Holstein over Schleswig, when the defenders ran away into the castle and left the town to the enemy. It's just one of the facts of the way war was fought at the time. The castle was a great way of projecting local power over the towns and waterways as such, but when push came to shove, it could only protect those within its walls.
0: The increase in siege weapons only led to an arms race in the east, as Novgorod built the hugely impressive castle on a small island in Lake Ladoga, the castle that would be known as Nertaboy. This is the definition of a great castle in the period, place where the river exiting Lake Ladoga is only 500 meters wide and so essentially plugging this gap. Being an unbelievably impressive defensive location, it was covering the center of the front line against Sweden and guarding the all-important trade flowing from Lake Ladoga out to the Baltic Sea.
1: We saw this in Denmark too, as King Eric has recently built fortresses and castles to cover the trade flowing through the Baltic Sea and notably enforce his sound due tax on ships passing the Öresund Strait. This shows how castles could be used to police other parts of life in society as well, such as taxation and legal matters we've seen recently with Vesterås castle where bailiff Jöse Eriksson essentially kicked off the entire rebellion against King Eric in Sweden with his oppressive tax policies and general violence that he administered from his castle
0: The governor or bailiff of these castles were tasked with collecting taxes and enforcing the will of the monarch or ruler of the county, and they quite often went about this in a brutal manner in Sweden, but also in Finland. The use of castles for these tasks actually increased because of one of the most well-covered topics in our narrative, the Black Death. We saw how in Sweden, castle-building peaked in the decades directly after the Black Death of 1350 and 1351. In fact, the second half of the 1300s is the extreme peak of castle-building in all of medieval Sweden.
1: Castles started to really take on urban functions, such as being trade centres and taking control of administration, due to the towns being devastated by the huge number of fatalities, among both those paying the taxes, but also those meant to be collecting them. The king and the nobles are using these new castles to gain closer control over the taxes and other urban functions. There were less people to control, and so it is important to actually get the taxes out of those few people, as revenues were falling massively. These new urban fortresses are actually a more efficient solution than simply trying to repopulate towns, and we saw this with the quite obvious decline of nearby towns, which lost their urban function in the same time of the crisis and immediately after.
0: This made the governors and bailiffs of the post-Black Death period even more important to the running of society and collection of taxes and rule of law, This also meant they were more liable to corruption and violence, being given free reign by the monarch on occasions in order to ensure their loyalty. This allowed figures such as our rogue Father Abraham down in Kalmar to tax the local populations to the extreme, using the power of both their position and the castle to enforce their decisions and use that power to just take land from the locals when he felt like it.
1: We can clearly see this role of castles being important over in Finland too, as the increase in castles and defences there in the early 1300s happened at the same time as Sweden built up the administration in Finland with tax regions called Slåtslän, castle counties, being created. They were based around the first major Swedish castles in Finland obo Åbo, Råseborg, Tavastehus and Viborg – from where the officials governed these districts and used them to collect the taxes and dispense justice.
0: Of course, those collecting the taxes also managed to somehow skim off a bit for themselves. The military, political and economic power the castles gave the owners meant that they were a sought-after commodity and were naturally homes of the rich and powerful. This ensured they were part of political life too, used as bargaining chips in negotiations, marriages and international treaties, as well as becoming the scenes of some of the more scandalous moments we've seen so far in Swedish history. So let's remind ourselves of these roles that they played in negotiations. We saw how brothers and dukes Erik and Valdemar received Kungahella Castle from the Norwegian king as support for their revolt against their brother and the Swedish king at the time, King Birger, in return for certain conditions.
1: Helsingborg Castle was one of the conditions when King Magnus allied with King Valdemar of Denmark to fight against his rebellious son, Duke Erik. In return for military support, Valdemar wanted the valuable castle to be handed over to Denmark. So these are big chess pieces on the table when it came to international relations.
0: Yeah, the castles are in the corner on the chessboard.
1: Good Point.
0: (laughs) Um, Axval was one of the many castles given away during marriage negotiations, being handed to Ingeboy after her marriage to that rebellious Duke Eric. Some were handed over or pawned to the Hansa at various points in history, and in general were given to people the king or powerful dukes wanted to keep on side or reward.
1: Exactly. We, of course, love Giovanni Franco, who received his castles in reward for being the tour guide of King Eric to the Holy Land. And we all remember the fuss kicked up when King Albert of Mecklenburg decided to start handing over all his castles and estates to his German friends and knights. Other powerful people were so powerful in their own right that they wanted to keep everything for themselves. Bill on grip being a prime example of that.
0: Oh yeah, there's lots of ways of these people using these castles. But now it gets to the most famous or perhaps infamous examples of using castles. And first, King Beria was taken hostage by his brothers during the Hortuna Games, but took his revenge by doing the same thing to them a few years later during a banquet at sherping's Hoose Castle in the sherping's Yesterbood, or the sherping Banquet. And it was in that same castle where he uh, locked up his brothers and starved them to death. And the Nysherping's Yesterbood was, that was when King Beria got his brother's guards drunk and arrested the two brothers in the middle of the night during some Christmas celebrations, and locked them away in the prison cells and literally threw away the key.
1: Yeah, I mean if you think your family Christmases are tough, you'd be glad <laughs> you're not
0: uh... a medieval Swedish royal family.
1: Yeah. Quite a dramatic scene there taking place in one of Sweden's most famous castles. Kings have died in castles too, sometimes from natural causes. One of the most prominent ones early in our timeline was Nes Castle on the island of Visingsö in Lake Vättern. Not one, not two, not three, but four Swedish kings died there: Karl the Seventh, Eric the King Johan, and King Magnus the Third, along with Jarl Birger Brusa, all died at Näs Castle on Wiesingsø. It was built by Karl VII, or by his father Sverker, and was the first major Swedish castle, actually in an age before Stockholm was a thing. It really was the place to be, and was the first masonry castle built in Sweden.
0: Because previously a lot of them would just be small wooden forts and things like this, but this was the first proper stone masonry castle. And we've seen a lot now of the things these castles were used for, political, military or economic roles that took over the lives of these castles. But what did they look like, how were they defended and what was daily life like there when they weren't the scene of elaborate murders and feasts or a fervent battleground? Well, unfortunately a lot of them are just ruins now, but we'll look at a few of them and also castles in general to try and build up this picture of castles in Sweden at the time.
1: Ness Castle on Visingsö, where those four kings died, was, like we said, the first major royal castle in Sweden. The location was strategically chosen on the headland with a view in all directions. It was assumed that the enemy attacks would come from the land side, so the defensive wall with its two towers faced north. The ruins are on the southern end of the island of Visingsø, in the southern part of the lake itself, right by the water. So it could be defended from the sea, but also has those important land defences. During battles between the sons of Magnus III, or Magnus Lordulos, in 1318, the castle was burned to the ground. Today, only a small part of it remains. Most of the castle ruins have been swallowed up by Lake Vättern itself, actually.
0: Yeah, and Nhi Xiaoping's is perhaps the other most famous castle in our story so far, or at least the one with the most dramatic events. In the 12th century, a square stone tower, a so-called castle, was built on a large rock promontory at the mouth of Sermonland's largest river. It would protect the town that grew up on the shore of the Baltic Sea there. This was a typical beginning for most of the early castles, starting off with a building or tower that was the start of the fortifications, which then grew over time.
1: And grow, Neuschöping's house certainly did. When the castle became too small for the ever-growing town of Neuschöping in the 13th century, a castle complex with a rectangular ring wall was built. The ring wall, which is preserved to about a Third of its former height is about three metres thick. During the end of the 14th century, the castle was then further expanded. The first time Nyshpingshus is mentioned is in 1266, when King Magnus became Duke of Sdermaland and got Nyshpingshus as his residence. This is important as it shows the moment when Magnus, whose brother Valdemar was king, with their father Bierjoul essentially running the country, he received an important title and a castle to go with it. Bierjoul was in charge of Sweden when the first real boom of castle building began.
0: And Nietzschepping's is of course notable for its prison cells, this is where Magnus Lord lost his son. King Virja locked up his two brothers Valdemar and Erik there, like we mentioned earlier. It's funny as the castle then goes on to play big roles in the political development of Sweden later, because it's first given to a German knight when King Albert of Mecklenburg takes over the country, before Boulbionsen Grieb takes it over in his big collection of castles that he had. Then the Nysherping's recess or treaty was signed there, proclaiming that the three Nordic kingdoms, Sweden, Denmark and Norway, would have the same region, which was a big pre Requisite for the Kalmar Union being formed the following year in Kalmar.
1: I mean, this really is the place, or the castle, to be in medieval Sweden.
0: Yeah, unless you're in the prison cells.
1: Yeah, they weren't that nice. And it was a proper castle, for sure. We have seen how both these two castles that we've mentioned have the main line of resistance, the curtain wall and towers. The ground in front of the wall was kept clear of all cover, and many had moats or were built on islands or other natural barriers or obstacles. When there was just one angle of attack over land, these defenses were multiplied and sometimes had different layers of walls and towers, like we saw at The Boy, for example. There would be a powerful gatehouse with arrow slits or portcullises, as well as maybe a bridge or a drawbridge over that moat.
0: Sometimes these castles would be almost impregnable to attack, and the larger ones would even have enough supplies to hold out for up to a year. In some cases it was the attackers who would run out of supplies first because of the small nature of some garrisons and the fact that the enemy attacking army had to live off the land in foreign soil. Something that Francis and Joseph Guise point out in their book Life in a Medieval Castle is that the defenders really did have the advantage. A small garrison of just 60 soldiers could hold out against 10 times that in a good castle. We've seen that in our various Swedish wars that only a few hundred men have defended each castle sometimes and that might seem small but it was usually enough.
1: Yeah, I think we smiled at various points, actually, like in the battle in Estonia that the castle was only defended by about 500 men, but this would mean that they would be comfortable defending against a force of around 5,000, which, yeah, is hard to imagine. But like Chris said, it is easier to feed those people, despite the problems of keeping supplies, like we mentioned before, than it is to feed the attackers. Looking over at castles in England at this time, because there are more records available there than from Sweden, we know that castles had a dedicated contractor supplying them. A John Hutting provided Rochester Castle in 1266 with food, 251 herrings, 50 sheep, 51 salted pigs, and other assorted foods.
0: Even the Brits are eating the herring there. I wonder if it came all the way from Scorna, maybe.
1: Yeah, maybe. And also, 51 salted pigs. I imagine that they're still live pigs <laughs> yeah. they just have been drenched in salt.
0: Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) The most important part of the entire castle when under siege, though, wasn't the food, but the well and the water supplies. These were often more vulnerable than the food, and if a well failed, then the siege would end quite soon because you can't survive that long without water. Water was cut off a lot during the Crusades, for example, and more than one castle had to surrender after trying to hold out drinking horses' blood and their own urine and beer and all that kind of things when the attacking forces had broken the water supply.
1: Ugh, not a nice situation to be in. Indeed, when Exeter Castle's water ran dry in 1136 and the castle's rebels surrendered to King Stephen, the troops came out and the king saw that... The body of each individual was wasted and enfeebled with parching thirst. But if you thought the defenders might have enough supplies to last a long siege, how else could you assault a castle? Well, the first is a frontal assault, using ladders and siege towers followed by catapults. It's the classic image of medieval castle warfare.
0: But that is extremely costly, of course, so other methods were investigating, some of them that have been around since ancient history and perfected by the Romans, for example. Undermining the walls was a classic attack technique, but not something we've seen in Sweden so far. You would dig under a castle, extend a tunnel under the walls, and then collapse the tunnel, taking the wall with it. As we've seen, though, a lot of Swedish land is extremely hard, thick rock, so it wouldn't really work with that technique here in Stockholm, for example. I know that Åsa knows all too well about this because they're building a new tube or a metro tunnel under her work, and even modern diggers and tunnel borers can't work there, do they?
1: No, I get a text message every other day that there will be an explosion and the building might shake. That's because the only way to build tunnels under most of Stockholm is to blast them out. Uh, So yeah, medieval sappers wouldn't stand a chance digging under some Swedish castles because of the rocky nature of, uh, of the ground here.
0: Yeah, and that's a very important local point to make. And that did, unfortunately, leave the attackers to employ the more basic methods of attack. We saw that with Engelbrechtsen using siege towers, for example. Now, battering rams very rarely worked against the reinforced immense gates of medieval Europe, so that wouldn't really work. But how would you actually get to the castle? Well, there's a moat for, for one. So the moat would have to be dealt with first, filling it in with earth and dirt so the assault towers could be wheeled forward. You would then want more than one tower, of course, because the castle defenders would try and set them on fire with torches or the fire arrows we know were well used at this point in history.
1: A frontal attack really is the medieval equivalent of D-Day, a very daunting task to have before you as a lowly foot soldier in a European army. And the attackers might be comforted by the fact that they might have ballistae and catapults firing at the enemy, but the defenders could also use these. English castles had catapults and trebuchets added to their walls and a ballista was even easier to mount on a wall. I mean it is, after all, simply a large crossbow. Handheld ballistae, known as crossbows to you and me, were extremely useful for both attackers and defenders, being more useful than the longbow, especially for the defenders.
0: If after all of this it did come to surrender, Castle Garrison's surrendering before it came too late were usually relatively well treated. Some were even allowed to return to their own side, as we saw in the Holstein War once or twice. On the other hand, sometimes prisoners were massacred and knights ransomed back to their own side, so it sort of just depended how it went in that particular battle. And one final attacking technique is, of course, ruse or trickery. We don't need to retell really the story of the Trojan horse here, but uh, that was certainly something people needed to be wary of.
1: Perhaps not a literal horse, as that would be quite suspicious, but something similar. Count Baldwin of Flanders was rescued from a Turkish castle when his soldiers disguised themselves as merchants before then stabbing the gate guards. Even a sneak attack by a few men at night on a lightly defended part of the wall might be enough to win enough time to open the gates. We saw when the Germans attacked Flensburg during the Holstein War that an agent of theirs ensured the gates to the city walls weren't locked, so the Danes had to retreat back to the castle once the enemy started pouring into the town. This is a classic way of sneaking in and something that needed to be guarded against The same as people finding out about any secret entrances or old sewer system that might be available for people to use to sneak in a few men to overpower some unsuspecting gods.
0: Yeah, if you can uh, get that little sneak attack in, then you might be able to open the gates. And so that means there's a lot to think about when defending a castle, that's for sure. It only gets worse right in our time period, as we saw last week when we covered the Siege of Steger Boy Castle. In that siege, as we mentioned, the defenders had 14 breech-loading guns, especially small cannons mounted on the walls of the castle to defend against the attackers, and these were commanded by a German artillery master. This was because artillery and cannons and bombards are now finally making their way to Scandinavia, as we saw when the Hansa and the Germans attacked Denmark with floating batteries a few decades previously. This is not only going to change the way castles are defended and attacked but we're now right on that borderline of cannons being actually effective enough to be used as the main weapon in a siege so yeah there's lots of stuff going on in the sphere of military technology
1: right now indeed so we have now covered a lot of why these castles were important and what sort of things might happen in a siege In summary, I think this quote from the Gieser's book sums up quite well why they were so important. Always ready, requiring little maintenance and repair, demanding scant advance notice of impending attack, the castles remained the basic centre of power throughout the Middle Ages. But now we know how they were defended and what the defences might have looked like, who was actually living there and what was life like, Well, at first, the castle needed to be constructed, and that was no mean feat. There's an excellent letter from the master builder of Beaumarie Castle on Anglesey in Wales to King Edward I in 1296, where he asks for a bit more money.
0: In case you should wonder where so much money could go in a week... We would have you know that we have needed and shall continue to need 400 masons, both cutters and laters, together with 2,000 less skilled workmen, 100 carts, 60 wagons and 30 boats bringing stone and sea coal, 200 quarrymen, 30 smiths and carpenters for putting in the joints and floorboards and other necessary jobs. All this takes no account of the garrison, nor of the purchases of material. So, yeah. Now, if you find a picture of this castle, it is really super impressive and bigger than a lot of the Swedish equivalents, but it shows you how much work was needed to build the thing. The work was led by a master mason, just like the French one who travelled to Sweden to build Uppsala Cathedral, for example.
1: We won't go further into the construction of castles, as that could be an entire episode in itself, but it is very fascinating. If you want to look into how it would have worked, Google Guerdelin Castle, a medieval castle being built right now in France, only using the techniques and technology from the time. It's been going on for over 20 years now, and it's a super impressive project. Uh, and it can teach you a lot about the way people built castles back in medieval Europe.
0: Yeah, it looks really, really cool. Um, They're kind of getting there. I think they've got about 10 years to go. And um, they do tours and uh, and visits and stuff to let people know how it's going. So uh, that's a cool place I really want to go to. But back to Swedish castles. And we're now going to be using a great book for a lot of the rest. Of this episode by Martin Rundqvist for this section, and he's written a book about medieval strongholds and castles just from Östergötland from 1200-1530 to 1530 CE, so exactly the period we're talking about now. And now a quick definition here that uh, Rundqvist explains. A lot of Sweden's castles at this time are called boja, or fortified sites or strongholds. They essentially have one or two of the five following features a keep or tower, a masonry outer wall, a bank, a moat, or were located on a small defendable island. And that leads a lot of them to being translated to castles in English, where they're more likely to be strongholds, forts, or fortified houses, as Rundchrist explains. So we're going to try and stick to the ones that are more of a castle here, but there might be some falling into that slightly lesser category when talking about some examples.
1: When looking at who lived at these various strongholds and castles, there's an excellent list taken from the accounts of Gregors Matson, a knight and future member of the Swedish council. In 1419, he writes the accounts for Stegeboi Castle. It's a little bit ahead in our narrative, but it is applicable to what we're talking about now, and it really gives you an idea of the scale of these places. Stegeboi had 51 different jobs present, split into 10 categories and covering everything from a seamstress or a pig tender to a shipbuilder or baker. Then there were also 12 visitors, including a Finnish trader and a crewman from a visiting ship. Which is quite fun in the list there. These people were split into 10 buildings or rooms, plus the main tower of the castle itself. You can tell it is essentially its own mini-economy here. A similar account from Linköping Castle in 1510 shows that these are essentially typical roles and people to expect at a castle at this time.
0: However, there are some people who do more than one role at once. Interestingly, it's mainly women who share roles at Steger Boy, being a farm wife and a seamstress, or someone who dyes clothes as well as being a brewer. At sherping it's mainly the men who share jobs, with the baker also being the steward and assistant in charge of procurement. The brewer there is also a pig feeder and works in the pantry, whilst the chef is also a horse expert, which uh, isn't typical, but from the accounts of the uh, bishop who was running the castle at that time, um, It seems like it was a very specific, well known horse trader who then became a a chef or something. But it's not typical, but super interesting nonetheless.
1: Yeah, interesting how these roles are being shared around. Let's look at one role in a bit more detail the baker. Both Steger boy and Linköping Castle had permanent bakeries on site and were in contact with local millers, but these specialised bakeries are only found at the largest masonry castle. At Eerdsholm the bakery is located in the outer bailey, whereas sometimes they're located in the main hall. Bread, of course, is the main source of carbohydrates in medieval Sweden's diet. The potato is still hundreds of years away.
0: It is indeed, and what goes well with bread? Beer. Stegerholm's inventory from 1506 says the castle had over a hundred barrels of various beers, plus three barrels of mead and over half a tonne of dried hops. This would have been complemented with the meat they ate, with 92% of all animal bones in Ørsterjötland's castles coming from either cattle, pigs, sheep and goat. And when it came to other meat, hunting would have provided some of the food for the aristocrats associated with the castles. Hunting roe deer and elk was a royal privilege in medieval Ostiotland, so Gregor's Matson was using his royal rights as a member of the Council of the Realm when his hunter Olaf went out to hunt, either with him or without him. This is perhaps not an important benefit when it came to food, although it was a weekly foodstuff at Stegelboy, but it was certainly an important societal status symbol.
1: I am also happy because almost all of Östergötland's castles and strongholds are located near or in open water, so that means fish and salmon and herring in particular in the diet, so that's very tasty. There are also a lot of eel traps found at these castles, Uh, I don't eat eel anymore because it's essentially been uh, extinct in the Baltic Sea, but uh, eel is tasty tasty. Dining was an important event in these castles, and as we know, that could sometimes turn ugly, like at Nyköping's Yestabud. This is also a very typical stereotype we have of medieval castles, these great feasts, and perhaps that's rightly so. At Sherping Castle, the lord of the castle employed one, perhaps even two, stake cutters, as well as other general servants and stewards who were responsible for serving the high table.
0: Amazingly, there are even preserved feast menus from 1510 at Linköping that go into some deep culinary details, where we learn that Beef and goose go with little dishes of mustard, as well as fried herring and eel. Chicken goes with applesauce. Dried fish goes with raisins and almonds, apparently. Cakes were even shaped like the castles themselves, or animals or trees. And even imported rice is served at New Year's and Easter.
1: That is amazing. What a list. So Fascinating that they were eating rice back in the 1500s, albeit just at New Year's and Easter, it's also good to see that herring is being eaten with mustard even back then, because that's still how it's sometimes eaten.
0: Yeah, in my opinion, that's the best way to eat herring, with as much mustard as possible.
1: <laughs> yeah, you like to cover the herring taste with mustard. Uh, luckily, after all the feasting, you could go to the toilet, and uh, that would be an inside toilet, at least at Stegeborg, Linköping and Stanser Castle. Uh, the rest don't seem to have any indoor toilets you'd have to go outside. We know nights in Sweden are long in winter, there's only about six hours of daylight in Östergötland and so candles and lanterns were extremely important to make sure anyone could get any work done and see where they were going. Some of these went into ornate pieces of brass work, sometimes made abroad. Even bigger sources of flame kept people warm and lit, with floor hearths and fireplaces being key parts of literally keeping people alive at the time. The winters were dark, but they were also cold.
0: Yeah, and that's the reason why sometimes the baker's ovens and things are in the main keep of the castle, because it's also just a, not a freeway, but, you know, it's got its benefits of keeping the main castle warm too. But these winters didn't mean that every moment was just about survival, as, after all, these were homes of the rich and the powerful. There were records of travelling barbers visiting Stegaboy Castle, and the owner of Lynchapin Castle left instructions to his staff to take care of his comb, scissors and clothes brush, for example. Clothes and cloth were also important for the staff. Gregor's Matson, like most crown thief holders of the age, paid his staff both in money but also in imported textiles. That's because cloth is easily standardized and easily measured. So let's pay Olaf the Hunter two meters of cloth for example, that's a really easy thing to sort out. There were also lead seals that have been found which were used to indicate the origin and status of these imported textiles, marking their value as currency even more important.
1: This cloth was then dyed, if desired, to other colours to suit whichever fashion was in time. A proper industry was built up around clothes and jewellery, with brochures and other items found at various strongholds around the country. Keeping up appearance was extremely important for the lords and rulers of these strongholds and their estates, but to keep up appearance, They had to show their face.
0: Indeed, just like kings travelling around the countryside and dispensing justice, the owners of castles had to do the same thing, at least if they had any decent size estate around them. Horsemanship was therefore a very important part of elite lifestyle and also their identities, hence the people at the castle employed to look after the horses and blacksmiths there to make horseshoes and so on. The legal obligations knights and the nobility had to the king in times of war demanded heavily armoured cavalry be provided, which of course needs horses. These war horses were extremely expensive. Spurs and stirrups were found at almost all of these castles in Ersteutland in this time period. And paying for all of this required a lot of taxation, plus customs and rent collection. The owners and keepers of the strongholds collected revenue both for themselves and their political masters, such as the king. This was in the form of taxes, customs, and rents and tithes, plus other more one-off income sources such as fines, plundering, or corruption.
1: Yeah, I mean, everyone likes a bit of good plundering and corruption. There was a lot of that in medieval Sweden. This collection of wealth varied, though. A lot was paid in kind or in labour rather than with coins, Stegeboy Castle had a specific area in the bailiff's cellar where the revenue was collected and where there were plenty of locks and padlocks to keep the contents secured and well guarded. Some of the castles had it relatively easy, Stegeboy again was one of these, as it was placed right on the river into the rich town of Söderköping, so it was the perfect place to collect customs duties. Some of this was collected and then eaten directly on site when the master was paid in goods like pork, fish and barley and rye. Yeah,
0: that's a pretty efficient way of collecting the taxes. If you got given coins, then you'd have to send someone into town to buy the food and bring it back. Whereas if the merchant just gives you pork, you just eat it right there.
1: I think I'm going to contact the Swedish tax authority and see if I can start paying my taxes in pork now instead of having it deducted from my salary.
0: You might get a a, a no in response.
1: May I suggest that instead of 30% of my tax being deducted right away, I present you two pigs every quarter
0: it reminds me of this excellent story from the uk about 10 years ago where a man was given a parking fine or something like that and he challenged the local council to trial by combat to (laughs) to dispute it and he said i i wait look forward to receiving your nomination of your champion or something like that and uh, unfortunately they rejected it
1: Boring!
0: Yeah, boring. Um, but yes, as a result of this way of collecting taxes, a majority of the salaries that Gregor's Matson paid his staff was in-kind, and he seems to have had almost an unlimited supply of textiles coming in from the traders passing by on their way into soder for example. So it was easy to pay in these cloths. This all means that there was actually relatively few finds of coins from these strongholds and castles, with their inhabitants focusing on the in-kind style of trading and taxation, and this also accounts for the soldiers that were based at these fortresses.
1: These soldiers had different jobs and different weapons, plus duties during peacetime. Jago's matson had a guard captain, a tower guard, and a gatekeeper on his full-time staff in 1490, but he would have also had a permanent garrison, which was paid for in kind by the tax collection he was doing. It's all very efficient and a circular way of keeping the castle running.
0: And some of these guards would be specifically trained, like the German artillery master working at Stegeboy in the previous episode, as well as gunpowder masters and gunners too. Lots of crossbows are being found at these Österjötland strongholds, and men were even paid with crossbows occasionally. I think there was one thing that uh, in Gregor's Matson's accounts where he had to give his guards a new crossbow every other year or something like that. So yeah, it's, it's not just cloth again.
1: Other roles that these soldiers had were to guard the prisoners taken by the fief holder Indeed, when Gregor Matson took over Stegeborg in 1487, he took with him an iron prisoner's collar and an iron bar with six manacles. After all, he would be the person responsible for keeping order in the county and would need somewhere to keep those prisoners he might take. This would also extend up to royal castles kept by the king, who occasionally needed to imprison some political opponents.
0: And I think that takes us pretty much full circle back to the beginning. We've covered a whole bunch of castle-related stuff from sieges to seamstresses. And we could have talked about this for at least another whole episode, but might be a bit of overkill, so I think we're going to just leave it here for now. Hopefully this was a good overview of the castles in medieval Sweden, and we just have to keep our eye on how they progress in society. Now that gunpowder is becoming increasingly important in war, so uh, let's see how that develops.
1: I think this has been quite a long episode now, so I think we will just leave it here for now and get back to you in two weeks with another chronological episode. What could possibly happen next, now that King Erik has officially lost his throne and the Swedish nobility have battled out their latest differences amongst themselves?
0: Before then, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or simply recommend us to a friend, family member or someone on the bus who might be interested in the history of this crazy country.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Goodbye.
0: Hey Do.